think I understand why devout Catholics and Hindus and Buddhists are drawn to a life of monasticism, that life of living in seclusion, owning only the bare essentials, eating very little, and committing to a life of celibacy. It seems like denying ourselves physically is the best way to be spiritual. But friends, that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Asceticism, that life of denying yourself physically in order to be spiritual, asceticism is a false religion that doesn't work. Paul said about asceticism in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism with human teachings like, quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Asceticism is a false religion that doesn't even work. As we're going to see in our sermon text this morning, some of the Christians in Corinth fell into this false thinking of asceticism. And we can understand their reason. Ancient Corinth was a city that was saturated with sexual immorality. In fact, to Corinthianize was to live an immoral lifestyle. Corinth was famous for its sexual immorality. So when the the Corinthians became Christians, they honestly weren't sure what was right and wrong about their human sexuality. Some of the Christians in the church at Corinth represented in chapter 6 last week believed that they were free in Christ to pursue their sexual, uh, sexual, their human sexuality in any way that they wanted. While others in chapter 7 believed that the best way to glorify God was to abstain from any kind of sexuality completely, a life of celibacy. Well, we're going to find out that Paul disagrees with both. Those who claimed freedom and those who committed to abstinence. In his letter, Paul gives a middle way, God's design for human sexuality. And so last week in chapter 6, what we learned was that Paul gave a prohibition on sexual 
immorality. Say no to immorality. And this week, in chapter 7, he gives instructions for sexual morality. Say yes to God's design for your human sexuality. So as we begin our study of chapter 7 this morning, my prayer is that you will understand how to glorify God as sexual beings in a world full of sexual temptations. Now, there are many benefits to this scripture this morning. I think if we pay attention, we'll learn the true nature of spirituality. I'm confident that we'll, we'll learn God's design for sexuality. And for those in the room who are married, I think you're going to be particularly encouraged about how you can help your spouse to be holy. And then for those who are not married in the room, I think you're going to be particularly encouraged about God's sovereignty over your relationship status. So let's read God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's God's word. Amen. Did you notice the first phrases in chapter 7, verse 1? It's apparent that the church at Corinth sent Paul a letter to which now he's responding. You see there in verse 1? 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they wrote, he's responding, and they wrote to him about various matters. We know that there were at least six issues in their letter to Paul because Paul responds six different times with this exact same formula. In fact, if you would like, just flip through your Bibles really quickly. Note in 7 verse 1, now concerning the matters. Look at 7.25. Now concerning the betrothed. Look at chapter 8 verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Look at chapter 12 verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. And then look at chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. And then one more time in verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos. Six different times, six different issues. They wrote to Paul, either asking him some questions or making some statements. And now he's responding to these matters, these issues. So in chapter 7, back to our sermon text, this first one, we don't know all that they wrote, but whatever they wrote, Paul's response includes instructions in verse 1 through 9 about marriage and singleness. Verse 10 through 16, separation and divorce. Verse 17 through 40, engagement and widowhood. Now you talk about some practical issues for life under the sun. That's everyone in the room. And those are our next three sermons. Marriage and singleness, separation and divorce, engagement and widowhood. And so here at the very beginning of chapter 7, there are a number of views from commentators, pastors, scholars, but I'm persuaded along with your copy of the ESV there that you're probably using or the one that we provided for you, I'm persuaded that Paul is actually quoting what they wrote to him in their letter, at least one phrase. So note verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. So either they wrote this to Paul, he's quoting and responding, or this is a statement that Paul is making. It is not good. And because of the rest of the chapter and all that he says, I'm convinced that this is not something that Paul is saying, but that this is part of the problem that's happening in the church at Corinth. They have a hyper-spirituality that has caused some of the people in the church to embrace asceticism which means that they are saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And it's gone so far that in verse 5, 
husbands and wives are depriving each other within their own marriages. And Paul says there in verse 5, stop it. Don't do that. The Corinthians had a false view of spirituality that went something like this. Celibacy is the highest form of spirituality. It's the best way to glorify God with our bodies, to abstain from something as lowly, something as base, something as fleshly, and in our culture, something as sinful as sexuality. If you want to be spiritual, then you will be celibate. After all, the guy who planted our church, Paul, he was celibate. And if you want an exclamation point on our theology, Jesus was single and celibate. Do you see? Celibacy is the best way to glorify God in our bodies. If you want to follow Jesus, then you will follow Jesus into celibacy. Well, that might not have been a problem for those who were single, but to a man and his wife who become Christians, now they're hearing this doctrine and abstaining from each other. Well, this wasn't only the church at Corinth. It wasn't only in the Greek culture. But for example, in 300 AD, Jerome asserts this, quote, all those who have not remained virgins following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels and that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself are polluted. John Chrysostom, famous Christian, John Chrysostom, 400 AD, claims, quote, Virginity stands as far above marriage as the heavens stand above the earth. So the highest form of spirituality, if you want to be a real Christian, then you should be celibate. Paul now responds to their letter in verse 2 through 5. No, no, celibacy is not the best way to glorify God in your body. Holiness is. Celibacy is not holiness. Holiness is not celibacy. We glorify God in our bodies, not by denying our natural passions and desires, but by fulfilling them in obedience to God's design. And so in verse 1 through 5, Paul says, God designed marriage for 
our holiness as sexual beings. And then in verse 6 through 9, for those of you who are unmarried, verse 6 through 9, God calls some to marriage, others to singleness, but everyone to holiness. Listen, ultimately, your spirituality is not determined by your relationship status. It is not more spiritual to be single or married. There are advantages to both and disadvantages to both, but it's not more spiritual to be single or married. So celibacy is not the ultimate form of spirituality. Paul instructs those who are married primarily in verse 2 through 5 on God's design for marriage. And he says it's less about your happiness than it is about your holiness. And then in verse 6 through 9, as a concession, the, the primary emphasis here is on married couples. As a concession, verse 6 through 9, he speaks to those who are not married. So just take a look at this whole section, verse 1 through 9, and I want you to notice that there are four different people that Paul addresses. And he addresses these different subjects with four imperatives. And these four imperatives are going to form the outline of my sermon today. So Paul doesn't just make some statements. The difference between an indicative and an imperative is an indicative says this is true. An imperative says you do this. So Paul gives four. Direct instructive commands. And we want to follow those four commands through the text this morning. Note in verse 2, the subject is each man and each woman. Verse 3 and 4, the husband and the wife. Verse 5, married couples. Then verse 6 through 9, the unmarried and the widows. So what we have here this morning are four imperatives for sexual morality. Sexual morality. And if you want a good subtitle, this is God's design for human sexuality in a sinful world. Number one. Celibacy is not for those who are married because, look, verse 2, but because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, I want to say at the very beginning of this that I believe verse 2 through through 5 is directed to married People, and that's really important. Paul is not saying that everybody should just get married. In fact, in a few moments, just in a few sentences, he says, I wish everybody was single like I am. So when he says each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, he's not saying just go get married and everyone should get married. 
Not at all. Paul's instruction is that each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. Have, biblically and clearly in this text, is a euphemism for marital relations. You are to hold fast to, have your own husband and your own wife. Paul is addressing married people here, saying that they should have their own spouse rather than fulfill their passions outside of their marriage. And this imperative, have, especially in the context of human sexuality, is always talking about physical intimacy. Just remember, back to Genesis chapter 2. Be good for you to turn there. This is the the foundational text for all of marriage in the rest of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. To have, as in the man has his wife or the woman has her husband, refers to being intimate, not getting married. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. So then we know the story that God brought every beast to the man. Interestingly, it was so that he could view all of the rest of the creatures in the whole world to find out exactly what God knew. There is not another fit for him. And so in verse 20, Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and look at this, brought her to the man. And then the man said, after seeing the glory of the entire animal kingdom. And imagine all of the creativity, all of the wonders that you and I uh, just marvel at every time we see National Geographic. Adam is seeing this live in color. Verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the commentator, the writer of Genesis says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become One flesh. That's marriage. Marriage is leaving. And then, what does the old King James call it? Cleaving. It's having. It's holding fast. Entering into that unique marital relationship of one man 
one woman in a physical union that causes them be now one flesh. Marriage is the death of me and the birth of we. So Jesus took this same text in Genesis chapter 2 and Jesus quoted it when he talked about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus says, after quoting this text, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul takes this same text from Genesis chapter 2 and he quotes it. Paul has such an elevated view of marriage. It's not merely something to satisfy your physical desires and escape from sin. No. Paul says that from the very beginning, God designed marriage, in his words, as a profound mystery. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, the union of one man and one woman who are no longer individuals, but now united physically is the same as the union between the church and Jesus Christ, who are now united spiritually. The great marriage. Every marriage in this room is a portrait of the great marriage of Jesus and his church. And friends, that's the gospel. That Jesus loved us as sinful, wretched, miserable as we are. That Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and so that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the great marriage. And you can be part of the bride of Christ by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you so that you can go from sinner to saint. And how many times has Paul already mentioned that in the book of First Corinthians? He calls them saints from the very beginning. And he says, remember, you guys used to be just as immoral and sinful as the rest of the people in Corinth. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then last week we heard that our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit that is within us. Do you remember last week? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
the great gospel marriage is about us becoming holy so that we can glorify God. So Paul begins here based on the gospel. And he says that celibacy is not the ultimate form of spirituality. Celibacy is not for those who are married. Married people should do what? They should hold fast to their own spouse. The way that we're holy as married people is to fulfill our desires within marriage, not outside of it. Number two, verse three and four. Not only should married people hold fast to their own spouse, but look at verse two. Husbands and wives should give themselves to their spouse. Husbands should give himself, himself to his wife. Wives should give themselves to her husband. Verse 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Why? Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Notice the emphasis here in verse 3 and 4. The husband should, what's the word? What's the imperative? What are, what are you supposed to do, husband? What's the word? Give. Wife, in the same way, what are you supposed to do? Give. The emphasis here is about giving yourself to serve your spouse, not using your spouse to serve you. Well, that sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Husbands and wives should give themselves to their spouse. That's the imperative in verse 3. But notice, the husband should give something to his wife. What is he giving? Her conjugal rights. Now, this is very interesting. Notice in verse 3, Paul talks about rights. And then notice in verse 4, he talks about authority. Rights and authority within marriage. What are conjugal rights? Well, the ESV uses the term conjugal rights. The NASB says, fulfill his duty. You mean there's a duty in marriage? You mean there are rights within marriage? What specific rights? What specific duty? The NIV says, fulfill his marital duty. Well, this, this, particular sentence here, the husband should give, verb, to his wife her conjugal rights, that noun, the verb is to pay back the debt that he owes. 
to repay the obligation that he took on with marriage. Husband, what obligation did you take on in marriage? In this text, we don't have to wonder what he's talking about. He's talking about physical intimacy, marital union. Paul says that within marriage, you have the right And notice that it starts with the man. Please look there at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Men, fulfill the marital intimacy you owe your wife. Now, how many times do we ever hear that? Most of the time, this particular text is used like a sledgehammer to guilt women into their marital duties. Before we ever use this for self-centered purposes, let's remember that Paul's view here is grounded in a thoroughly Christian understanding of the gospel of love. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not seek its own advantage. Love always seeks to please the other person. Love serves others, not serves self. So husbands, give yourselves to your wives. That's what you signed up for when you got married. And Paul supports this in verse 4 with 4. Here, let me give you the basis for this. Look at verse 4. Because there's authority involved. When you entered into the covenant, see, marriage is not just a, a casual agreement that is all filtered in, you know, heart eyes and love bubbles. Marriage is a covenant. It is a blood union, a blood covenant. Until death do we part. For better or worse, richer or or poorer in sickness and in health. When you made those vows, you made that covenant with your spouse and you stopped being your own. You now belong to her. You now belong to him. Until death do you part. Read verse 4. The wife does not have her uh, authority over her own body. Now, send yourself back to AD 50 in that culture, Greek, Roman, Jewish, doesn't matter. Women, kids, they were basically thought of as slaves around the house. Very low position in society. 
So we can understand that. Once, once this woman gets married, she's no longer her own. She basically belongs to her husband. No big deal, right? If, if you just want to read it with the culture in mind. But read the rest of verse 4. Under the inspiration of God, Paul says, the husband likewise does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is a mutual covenant, friends. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God, and they are equal in marriage. They have different roles, but they are equal. And may our marriages reflect that beautiful equality under God. That the man doesn't have authority over his own body is remarkable, jaw-droppingly astounding here in the context of ancient Corinth. David Garland, one of the commentators that I'm reading, says about verse 4, Both husband and wife should recognize, listen to this, that their spouse has a greater claim on them than they have on themselves. Each is to not look only on his own interests, but on the interests of the other. God designed marriage for your holiness. And one of the ways that you can help your wife or your husband to be holy is by giving yourself to your spouse. Husbands and wives should give themselves, fulfill their marital responsibilities. Number three. For imperatives, for sexual morality, married people should hold fast to their own spouse. Husbands and wives should give themselves to their spouse. And number three, couples should not deprive. Could you make that all caps in your notes? Could you please bold it and underline it? And if you have a highlighter or maybe ask somebody next to you if they have a highlighter, please highlight that. Do not deprive one another of marital intimacy, verse 5. Read verse 5. There is just no way for us to understand this except for a massive prohibition. It's an imperative that says, stop it. This is what they were doing. They were depriving themselves, claiming to be spiritual in the process, but in the, in the process, they were keeping themselves from their spouse and causing their spouse to be, the word deprived means robbed, defrauded. It's a strong word that implies theft. You are ripping your spouse off with this false theology. So do not deprive one another, except, okay, except, Here's a possible reason, except perhaps by agreement. Could you circle that? For a limited time. Could you circle that? So that you might devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again. Underline, 
Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says, listen, you live in a sex-saturated culture, and within you are passions that God put in there, and God designed marriage for the satisfaction, the holy satisfaction of those passions. So you want to know how God designed you to live in this sinful world? Couples don't deprive one another of marital intimacy. Stop stealing. Stop robbing each other. Now, Paul gives a perhaps, except perhaps for a limited time if you want to devote yourselves to prayer. Now, isn't that weird? What does that mean? I mean, how long did they pray? How intense was their prayer? So I think that this exception might have reflected a common Jewish understanding that encouraged abstinence during special holy days and to prepare for uh, special missions and duties. Uh, for example, when God saw the people of Israel uh, at the at the base of Mount Sinai, uh, God instructed Moses, quote, uh, uh, Exodus 19.15, be ready for the third day uh, and tell the people, do not no- go near a woman. So they were supposed to abstain because they were about to meet God, right? Um, David, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, said that his men always uh, abstained when they were on an expedition. So this probably goes back to something like that. Uh, one of the, you know, historic scholars that I read said in Judaism, the husband, this is Judaism, not gospel Christianity, but in Judaism, the husband had the right to abstain himself or absent himself from his wife for prayer or study and only needed to inform her of this decision. But here Paul insists not just for informing her, but a mutual agreement. Prayer and marriage are not mutually exclusive. Just like prayer and eating are not mutually exclusive. And for various reasons, a person might decide to be abstinent during a time of devoted prayer, just as one may decide to fast during a time of concentrated prayer. But David Garland says, neither abstinence nor fasting is a requirement for prayer. Paul recognizes that times arise when one is so overwhelmed by a spiritual concern that retreat in prayer might be expedient. Okay? But then what does he follow up with? But then come back together again. He even puts the word limited time in there. Amazing. And why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of or through, through your lack of self-control. So we see here in this text a very curious little thing here. 
we see a command not to deprive one another, follow me, and a warning not to stay apart too long because of something so good like prayer. So I think it's worth asking ourselves, married couples, what causes you to withhold yourself from your spouse? I can think of a lot of very unspiritual, sinful reasons that we might do that. Couples should not deprive one another. Couples should agree. Couples should be mutually involved in this decision. Why? Because this is God's design for living in a sinful world in bodies that are created for physical pleasure, and surrounded by sexual temptation. That's Paul's instruction to those who are married. Then in verse 6, Paul says now a concession. A concession. Uh, Not a command. So, So this is somehow different than what he's just said. And it seems like what Paul is saying is, I'm about to give you my opinion on a matter. So you could take verse 6 and you could a- apply it back up to the uh, the stay apart for fasting and then get back together thing. Or I think, along with many others, that 6 is part of 6 through 9, where he's about to give a concession that is not a command and he states his opinion a number of times. And his opinion is, I wish, verse 7, everyone was single like I am. So he just spoke to the married people. Then he says, if you want my opinion... I wish everybody was single and celibate. Verse 6, now is a concession, not a command. I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows who are currently unmarried. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That's the imperative. There's only one imperative from 6 through 9, and right there it is. They should marry surrounded by a bunch of different conditional clauses. And it actually could be, could be translated, let them marry. Because the church might have been keeping them from getting married. Why? For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The words with passion are not in the original, but it is better, uh, it is better to marry than to burn, not talking about hell at all. It's burning with the passion that is natural to you and unfulfilled. So verse 6 and 7, Paul's opinion, I wish everyone was single like I am. He's going to talk about that more later. Next week, we're going to get to that. And then the third series in in chapter 7, he's going to talk about it even more when he talks about what should I do if I'm engaged? Should I get married or not? But for right now, Paul says in verse 7, 
even though I wish everyone was single, that's not God's calling for everyone. You say, where's the word calling? Well, it's not there, but look, in verse 7. But each has his own gift. The word gift is something that God gives. So in this context, what Paul is saying is that God gives you the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Some people, he gives them the gift of singleness. Some people, he gives them the gift of marriage. Note that marriage is a gift. Note that singleness is a gift. It just depends on the sovereignty of God for you. Your spirituality is not determined by your relationship status. But then he gives his clear instruction in verse 8 and 9. Lest you get weary, we're almost done. Verse 8 and 9. Clear, clear instruction. And it's odd. Celibacy is the ultimate form of spirituality. If you want to glorify God in your body, then abstain from sexual relationships. Don't fool with that stuff. Paul says if you're married, no way. If you're single, I wish everybody would stay single and celibate. Verse 8. So to the unmarried and the widows, and, and by the way, in our culture, most of the time, widows are older. But in their culture, I'm not going to say most, but many, many, a high percentage of widows were still very young because of war, etc., etc. Persecution later. To the unmarried and to, to the widows, currently single, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but... If they want to, they can get married. Now, in the context of a culture and a world that is filled with temptation to sexual immorality, Paul says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Why? Because it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is... Not just Paul's opinion. This is God's word through the apostle Paul. Here's Paul's bottom line. For Paul, singleness is better than marriage. He gives that tentatively. By concession, not by command. But his confident assertion in verse 8 and 9 is this. Marriage is better than sinning. Celibacy has its advantages, but it's not for everyone. But holiness is. So God calls some people to marriage and others to singleness. But if you cannot control yourself, then pursue marriage. Because marriage is way better than sinning. Unmarried people should marry if they cannot exercise self-control. 
unmarried people should marry if, in Paul's opinion, be better to stay single, but if you cannot exercise self-control, then marry. Because holiness is on the line. Okay. Well, listen, this text has taught us how to glorify God as sexual beings in a world full of sexual temptations. Celibacy is not the best way to glorify God in your body. Holiness is. We we glorify God in our bodies, not by denying our natural passions, but by fulfilling them in obedience to the God who created you. Are you doing that? Or are you fulfilling your natural uh, passions by disobeying the clear instruction of the God who created you? In a multitude of ways. Privately with another person or in perversion. God designed marriage for our holiness Married people should hold fast to their own spouse. Husbands and wives should give themselves to their spouse. And couples should not deprive one another of marital intimacy. And for those who are unmarried, God calls some to marriage and others to singleness. But friends, God calls all of us to holiness. And he makes us holy through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's live that way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you very much that you are God and we're not. You're creator. We are creation. And not only did you create us, but you know what is best for us. And so your word always leads us to life and health. And sin ruins everything. So I pray that we would pursue holiness. I thank you that you have made us holy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would, by your grace, cause us to pursue holiness in whatever relationship status we're in. I pray that you would cause husbands and wives to fulfill their desires within their marriage, to give themselves to one another and to not deprive their spouse. I pray that you would give wisdom to single people. Give them grace to wait. Give them grace to love you more than themselves. I pray that you would do this so that we and everyone around us knows how awesome you are by how we live in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.